real relaxation doesn't come from doing nothing at all if you're a busy person, but rather doing something different. An alternative outlook, a change of atmosphere, a diversion of effort is essential. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I offer up a gentle weekly reminder about how slowing down can actually make you more productive. We've just turned a corner on a new year, and I've no doubt that many of you are keen to turn over a new leaf. In fact, that's probably why you're listening right now. Perhaps you're considering how you can create a daily work schedule that feels just a little bit more sustainable. Or maybe you've decided to prioritize creative projects that have sat on the sidelines for far too long. Or perhaps you're just intent on prioritizing relaxation and vacations so that you can avoid burnout and stay resilient. Well, good news. Today's guest, Alex Peng, has been specifically chosen to give you some food for thought about all of these topics and more as we ease into 2018 with the intention of dialing down the urgency and maybe, just maybe, achieving a little bit more poise and grace in our daily doings. Alex is the author of the wonderful book, Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less, which recently came out in paperback. I was turned on to his writing when I read a provocative article entitled, Darwin Was a Slacker and You Should Be Too, about how some of the greatest minds of the past few centuries all worked in a very similar way, spending only about four to four and a half hours a day doing their most important work. But Alex's book goes much deeper than just a discussion of daily routines, getting into exactly what high performers do in their leisure time, how much valuable work our brains are doing when they're supposedly at rest, and why something that he calls inward focus is such a crucial part of the creative process. If you're having trouble slowing down and building rest into your daily regime, I think this conversation could be a real game changer for you. It outlines not just why it's so important to make time for regular breaks and restorative vacations, but also exactly how you can go about building these things into your schedule in a way that really boosts your creativity. Let's get started. So I want to start by talking about the values that underpin the modern open plan office and whether they're actually beneficial. You use the phrase performing busyness in your book, which I really love. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit more? Sure. Well, the idea behind the term performing busyness is that we live in an economy in which we are measured less and less by um, discrete measures of output, right? A field that we have plowed or a number of widgets that we have turned out at the end of the day. And very often in order of service industries and professions or creative industries, the work that we do is complicated. It has a kind of, of ambiguity in its results or its value that is, for some of us, kind of frustrating or challenging and, uh, and is so as well for organizations and managers. And so... I think, you know, you know, in a world in which it is difficult to know on a daily basis whether someone is being productive or not by some kind of external objective measure, things like how busy you look and how much time you spend in the office start to become proxies for productivity for commitment, for professionalism, you know, and taken to an extreme, there are you know I, we all know people who uh, have mastered the art of looking busy 
um, more than they have uh, mastered the art of actually doing stuff. But I think that, you know, there is always an element of work that has a performative aspect to it. Um, you know, whether you are a lawyer or a plumber or you know, a sheet metal worker, there are expectations about how you're supposed to behave, you know, what kind of person you're supposed to be when you inhabit this role. And so, you know, in a sense, this is this is nothing new. But what's different is the way in which busyness gets, first of all, connected to evaluations of how effective we are on the job. And second, busyness also is something that has a real psychological effect on us, right? Or the sense that we are constantly, um, you know, sort of overwhelmed, overworked, overscheduled. These are things that have real psychological impacts, both in the short run and in the long run. And so I think that one of the most challenging but most useful things that we can do is recognize the way that busyness becomes a symbol, the way that it becomes something that is a piece of occupational theater, and to be able to or to push back against it when it doesn't serve our purposes very well, or to not expect it so much of others. You know, as for the open office plan, I think that the main thing I have to say about it is it is the devil's floor plan. Um, you know, if if you wanted to design a style of office that was customized to maximize distraction, to minimize productivity, you would go with the open office. And it is incredibly ironic that we live in an era in which faux tension and concentration are arguably more important for more of us to sustain on the job than ever. But we often operate in these environments that make that really hard and force us to come up with ways, you know, everything ranging from, you know, headphones to escaping to other places um, to help us sort of manage the problems created by that space. So you talk about the shift to knowledge work and how, um, you know, intangible some of the outcomes of that are. Mm -hmm. What are the other points that you talked about in the book uh, was this sort of industrialization of intellect, this idea that we now have that knowledge is produced rather than discovered or revealed, mm -hmm. uh, that, that knowledge and insight comes from concerted activity and effort rather than from inactivity and, you know, maybe even attaining a certain kind of inward calm. Right. Um, and I thought that idea was really fascinating. Can you kind of break down how you see that shift happening? Sure. Um, I should confess I am you know, th that uh, Joseph Piper in his great book, Leisure, the Basis of Culture, was the one who first talked really seriously about this. So some of what I'm doing is or is channeling him. But I think that the, the, the central insight here in Piper's work is that for a long time, we had a vision of sort of creativity or a vision of knowledge work that had space for um, essentially for inspiration um, and for a recognition that it that creative work required a degree of inward focus, a degree often of solitude and of contemplation that was essential for 
the revelation of new ideas, for a kind of deep exploration of complicated concepts, for filtering out from a multitude of ideas the few concepts, the few things that really mattered and were really worth or uh, really worth following and sharing. And one of the things that has happened in really over the last couple hundred years, but certainly uh, has accelerated in our lifetimes, has been a shift away from or a kind of mistrust of the version of creativity that acknowledges the importance of things like solitude and time in the creative process. And instead, what we have is a model or vision of creativity that um, consists of several parts. One is that the more time you spend laboring at sort of a creative work, um, the better you're going to be. But there's also this sense that creative work does not need um, individuals so much as collective action. Or sort of that, you know, creativity is more the product of a kind of semi-random stochastic collision of ideas that happen between individuals, um, whether they are, you know, in the conference room or in line at the coffee shop or whether they are in the open office where you are bouncing ideas off of people all the time and you get sort of suddenly one person saying one thing and another person saying something else. And those two ideas kind of lock together and form sort of a new sort of creative combination that neither one of them would have been able to come up with on their own. So rather than creating spaces or creating schedules that have space both for collaborative activity and for solitary work. We've now moved to a world in which we've uh, de-emphasized um, contemplative time, solitude, uh, that kind of uh, the, the sort of creative work that comes from diving very deep, but necessarily having to do so for periods by yourself to a model of creativity that emphasizes time spent laboring and time spent laboring in the company of other people. And I think that just as performing busyness is one of those things that you only do in the company of other people, performing busyness when you're by yourself doesn't have a lot of logic to it. Um, you know, so too, if we sort of moved into a world in which creative activity is something that we assume um, is largely the product of collaborative activity in kind of collective corporatized environments, and we've lost touch with the idea that, you know, an important part of, of creative work happens by oneself and that learning Learning to work that way is just as important for creatives as learning to work with others. When you use this phrase that I really like, inward focus, mm -hmm. which um, one doesn't hear very much these days, what do you think that consists of? For me, you know, the purpose of that kind of sort of inward focus as opposed to the kind of sort of uh, mental state or creative state that you get in when you're in the company of other people when you're doing a more explicitly avowedly collaborative work, it allows for a level of reflection and analysis and kind of, and of sorting through 
problems and possible solutions that's very difficult to do in public, in the company of other people. And I think that, you know, one of the things that many of the people in my book recognize is this is how how incredibly important it is when you're doing serious work to make that particular kind of time for yourself, that time for inward focus, that time for reflection and contemplation, and also time that allows your subconscious to to process ideas and to push them forward. Well, that's kind of the perfect transition. I think um, when you look at how much concerted effortful, focused work that we can do in a given day, you talk about this magic number, which is really Mm -hmm. four hours that we can really only do about four hours of concentrated creative work in a given day. Can you walk me through how you kind of arrived at that number and some of the profiles that you looked at? Sure. You know, I started looking at the daily schedules of some really very accomplished and very creative people. Along, you know, ranging from um, Charles Darwin, the great naturalist, or Charles Dickens, the or the writer who was Darwin's contemporary, down to people like Stephen King and Scott Adams, um, Toni Morrison, I realized that they followed a similar kind of schedule. That you know, for that for them, four or five really concentrated hours was actually a really good day for them. This was a pattern I also saw in. Anders Ericsson's great study of violinists at the Berlin Conservatory, where this was the the, the article that introduces the concept of, de, of deliberate practice that uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about in his 10,000 Hours. And one of the things that, uh, that, uh, that Ericsson and his collaborators saw was that one of the things that separates the uh, sort of the really great performers at conservatory from the merely average ones was not just how many hours they practiced, but the way in which they practiced, that they would break their practice times into a couple sessions of 90 minutes to two hours with a break in between. And that would be kind of the peak of their day. They also would, Erickson noted, but didn't spend a lot of time on, they also slept more than the average student, in part because they often took naps during the day. And they weren't, they didn't spend as much time in leisure or doing leisure activities, but they were better at accounting for it. And that started me thinking, uh, thinking that not only were these people practicing deliberately, but they were also resting deliberately as well. They were making more strategic choices about their downtime. But, you know, you see in a variety of fields this pattern where about four really concentrated hours are sufficient to do one's most critical work. They're sufficient to do really good work. And for whatever reason, um, they seem to be the, the, the kind of physical, the physical limit that most of us have in or of our, or of our, our daily working schedules. Now, you know, you can spread it out and, and you know, most of us in reality um, in nine to five jobs where in between meetings and calls or, you know, or other things, we're able to do you know, heads down work for certain periods of time. And if we're lucky, we can get to four hours. But the people who have a lot of control over their schedules, who are really thoughtful about how they work and very consciously will experiment with their daily schedules, who are trying to do really 
creatively difficult, ambitious things. Even those people arrive at a daily schedule in which they do what we would regard as labor for only about four hours. If that's what you need in order to write Great Expectations or The Origin of Species, it may be that this is a pattern that all the rest of us can learn from and try to employ in our daily work and our daily lives. You mentioned, you know, these high performers that Anders Ericsson is studying um, were not really engaging in traditional leisure activities. Um, you know, I think nor were um, necessarily maybe Darwin or Dickens or Toni Morrison. So when these people are not, you know, doing their four hours of really focused work, what types of things are they doing? So um, they tend to converge around sort of a, f a few big activities. Um, they're all characterized by um, being often sort of physically engaging which is, you know, good if you've been sort of sitting at a desk for the whole morning. Um, they also, though, are generally not that mentally engaging. And this is important because um, that gives that gives them time to let their minds wander to or turn over in the back of their minds problems that they've just been working on and often to come up with or solutions that had eluded their conscious effort. So... You know, for many of them, the single most important thing that they do is go on long walks. Um, walking turns out to be both very popular and, psychologists are discovering, rather effective as a means of stimulating or sustaining that kind of creative state that um, allows for the emergence of new ideas and insights. It's also, of course... Excellent exercise and the kind of exercise that you can engage in for your entire life. Um, Charles Darwin, for example, actually built a walking path um, at the back of his house. And he would go walking there or a couple times every day and did so virtually until the end of his life. It was a space that he called his thinking path. And he would go out there after his morning work and essentially sort of turn over ideas as, as he was sort of doing, doing circuits around the path. He would put a set of rocks at one point and would knock them sort of from one side of the path to the other with his cane as he, as he passed by. And this way he would know how many times he had gone around because he was apparently so lost in thought that, uh, that if he didn't do this, that he could, you know, he would just keep walking. So at a daily level, um, walking turns out to be really terrific. Um, there are other people who will do more serious exercise, and there were there were a certain number of swimmers um, in my cohort. So you know, people like Hemingway, um, Le Corbusier loved to swim whenever he was uh, or if he was he was near the water. Um, and again, for them, that was an activity that was physically strenuous, but it also allowed their subconscious time to think on its own. So, you know, I think that those kinds of activities, ones that are physically more engaging but mentally less engaging, are ones that sort of people tend to gravitate to. We're going to take a short break now, but stick with us. Because afterwards, Alex and I get into a fascinating discussion of why your brain is at its most creative when you're doing nothing at all. Plus, the secret to taking a truly restorative vacation. 
This episode is sponsored by WordPress.com. As someone who guards her time jealously, I am very particular about the tools that I use to run my business and make my ideas happen. And I've been a dedicated WordPress.com user for going on 10 years now. I use WordPress every day to manage my personal blog, to publish great content for this podcast, and to connect with listeners like you. In fact, I actually designed, built, and populated the Hurry Slowly website from top to bottom in a matter of hours using WordPress. And I think it looks pretty classy if I do say so myself. The best thing about using WordPress is that you really don't need any experience or expertise to set up a website. They will guide you through the process from start to finish. And they take care of the technical side so that it's easy to get your site up and running. Plus, the customer service team is available 24-7 to help you get the most out of your website. Plans start at just $4 per month. There's a reason why 28% of all the websites on the internet run on WordPress. Get started today with 15% off any new plan purchase. Go to wordpress.com slash hurry slowly to create your website and find the plan that's right for you. That's wordpress.com slash hurry slowly for 15% off a new website. I want to talk specifically about the brain. What are the differences between the way that our brain is operating when we're consciously focused on executing work versus when we're just resting or daydreaming or letting our minds wander, as we were just talking about? Right. So the big difference is that there are actually two different kinds of networks that are activated when we're doing focused work and when we're allowing our minds to do nothing at all. So when we allow our minds to just relax and to go where they want, what neuroscientists have discovered is that there's a network that they call the default mode network that switches on. They discovered this in the 1990s when they were sort of when people were first working with fMRI machines, functional magnetic resonance imaging. And they were putting people in these machines and realized they needed sort of some baseline measurements if they wanted to study concentration. So they were telling people, go in here and don't think about anything at all. And what they saw was that rather than, you know, our brains getting quiet, um, sort of switching off, they weren't doing that at all. There was this whole second network that was starting up literally sometimes in the space of an eye blink. And so the brain seems to be really good at turning on the default mode network. And it turns out that um, the default mode has a couple valuable features and does a couple useful things for us. Um, One of the features, it connects together parts of the brain that usually aren't linked during moments of conscious activity. It also cuts out the section that does kind of editing and filtering. You know, the part where you have an idea and you think to yourself, oh, that's a stupid idea. Um, That part tends to be a lot less active uh, participant in the network. Um, Another thing is that the network tends to gravitate to a couple different kinds of subjects. One is things that have happened in the past. Um, another is sort of recent events. So cons- so it's involved in consolidating and making sense of memories. It also has an ability to take up um, problems we've been working on, whether this is kind of personal issue or a work issue. This is why the default mode turns out to be um, important for everybody, but especially important for creative people. Well, and so when we're resting, when we think that we're not 
thinking, right, the conclusion would be that we really are doing a very, um, you know, useful and productive type of thought. It's just thought that we're not particularly conscious of in the moment, typically. Exactly. Yeah. You know, our brains, when we are at rest, quote unquote, are only maybe five to 10 percent less active than our brains are when we are doing calculus problems or, you know, trying to choose between three different flights to get us to someplace you know, at the lowest cost. So the default mode network turns out to be a really powerful tool for working on problems, for enhancing our creativity. And deliberate rest is sort of the set of practices by which of creative people give their wandering minds time to work on and solve problems. It's one of the things that explains how it is that they're able to be creative even while apparently laboring fewer hours than most, you know, than most of us do at our jobs. Yeah. And I think if there are people out there who feel, uh, you know, a bit guilty about resting because, you know, they have a, they're sort of a, you know, maniacal type A or have this Protestant work ethic. If you look at it from that brain chemistry perspective, that when you're resting, your brain is really only five to 10% less active, right? That should be somewhat comforting and make you feel a little bit less guilty because really there's sort of just as much happening. Absolutely. You know, and I think that the one of the keys is recognizing that there are ways that you can structure your downtime um, to make the default mode network work better on your behalf. So, you know, one of the one of the essential things that you see in the sort of daily schedules of really creative people is that they don't work intensively and then like lounge around for a couple hours and then go out for a walk. They tend to sort of go for a walk, go for a swim, do these other activities immediately after the work period. And what this does is essentially you kind of use the you're doing important work in those four hours, but you're also kind of creating a sort of sort of cognitive momentum that carries over into rest time. And that is important for helping your subconscious or, or nudging your subconscious to take up a problem. John Cleese talks about when he's writing that, you know, he'll get stuck on a problem and he will be working in the evening and then he'll go to bed. And then the next morning he will come back to a sketch and he'll be able to finish it. And he won't even see what the problem was that he had the night before. And it is for him proof that his mind is continuing to work on, you know, or figure out the punchline even while he is unconscious. So understanding that in a way, those periods of focused concentration set up periods for subconscious creativity is one of the keys for creating a kind of rest that, um, you know, if you're, you know, if you're a big believer in the Protestant work ethic, you can engage in guilt-free. Isn't it true that there are also some creative activities that are actually better to do when you're tired, like, say, brainstorming, for instance? Yeah, well, you know, I think we we tend to think of um, or of every hour of the day as like equal to every other hour in terms of our productivity or, or of creative ability. And this is, you know, this is sort of a function of working in offices or other workplaces that treat the day as a kind of undifferentiated whole, right? From, you know, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. It's all, you know, as far as employers are concerned, it's all the same. But it really isn't all the same as far as our, our brains are concerned. Generally, it is the case that most people find are actually a little bit more creative 
um, in times where they are a little bit, not exactly um, sleepy. If you are, let's say, not naturally a morning person, um, it turns out that uh, that you're often a little bit more creative in the very early hours than you would be later on in the day. And what seems to be happening is what psychologists call um, disinhibition, sort of the the lowering of barriers to or to creative thinking. Um, disinhibition is greater in periods where we're a little bit tired, but not so tired that we can't think. Mm-hmm. Well, the way that I tend to think about it is I used to work, um, I do not now, but I used to work in an office, you know, a sort of nine to six or, you know, eight to seven type of day, depending on what type of day we were having. And right. I found that I would often, um, you know, get some of my best ideas and particularly ideas for pieces of writing when I was taking the subway home if I didn't take that opportunity to, you know, engage in some sort of leisure activity, like say reading or listening to a podcast, I think that because we have so many opportunities now to kind of, you know, access information and cram someone else's ideas into our brain, that sometimes we really miss out on that time, particularly that when you're a little bit tired or worn out, that actually can be quite fertile creatively because we're not sort of just leaving our minds open to it. In a way, the challenge that we have now is recognizing the value that can come when we do nothing at all. Um, you know, when, when rather than, um, whipping out our phones and checking our email when you're, you know, in line somewhere, for example, or when you're just sitting, giving yourself permission to do nothing at all is something that we've never been terribly good at, but we can avoid now more efficiently um, than ever in history. And the potential loss here is that you know, we lose out on the psychological benefits that come from mind wandering, from you know the opportunity to to have interesting ideas, to have those sort of little insights or aha moments like the ones that you had on the ride home, um, but also that you know in hyper scheduled lives that it's easy to lose the ability to allow ourselves to disconnect and to do nothing at all. And when you become accustomed to a kind of, uh, you know, a kind of life in which you are constantly stimulated, you run the risk of not just losing the benefits that come from those moments of creative, uh, creative idleness, but, you know, it also begins to have an effect on your psychological balance as well. And so, you know, for all of those reasons, it's really a good thing to take those moments as a gift rather than as a challenge to avoid boredom. Well, so speaking of doing nothing, I wanted to kind of shift gears to talking about vacations. Yeah. Everyone knows that taking regular vacations is a good idea. And, you know, most of my listeners probably also know that Americans in particular are pretty terrible at taking vacations. So first of all, what are the effects of not taking vacation or going on, say, only like one to two kind of longer vacations per year? Okay. Well, there have been some very interesting studies looking at people like, um, you know, civil servants or over the course of decades. 
and measuring the effect of overwork and or not, and uh, and vacations on their health. One of the things that you see is that uh, over the very long term, people who take regular vacations are physically healthier. They have fewer mental health issues. They're less likely to burn out. Um, in their later years, they're also less prone to things like uh, sort of dementias or other um, cognitive challenges. And so, you know, when you are when you don't take vacations and stay at work, you risk making a very significant long-term trade-off in your health for um, what is usually an illusory short-term gain. Now. In the short run, psychologists talk about um, detachment, which is the ability to get away from the office, not just physically, but, you know, to put it out of your mind and, and to be able to focus on other things. So, you know, not checking your email, um, not checking voicemail sort of on the weekends or you know, when you go off on holiday. These are things that turn out to be really important for giving you time to cycle to rebuild kind of psychological energy and the physical energy that uh, sort of that you spend working. Now, I think that you know, fundamentally, the only bad vacation is the is the vacation you don't take, right? And so, you know, if you're in a position where sort of the where what you've got is two weeks that you can only take in the summer, go ahead and take those. I mean, there's sort of there's no question. Um, if you are in a position where you can play around some with your schedule, um, there are there's research that indicates that uh, there are ways that you can design your vacation time to be even more restorative than usual. So one of the things is slightly shorter vacations are often just as restorative as long ones. So what happens, it turns out, is that when you go on vacation, your level of happiness peaks after about one week and sort of stays there. So if what you're trying to do is take a vacation that allows for like maximum um, mental restoration, about seven or eight days is going to give you as much benefit as, let's say, three weeks. The other thing is that the benefits of a vacation last about two months or so. And so if you can get into a cycle where you're taking a week or 10 days every three months, then that's totally awesome. Of course, most of us don't have sort of schedules that allow for that. And the most useful thing that we can do in between those vacations is to have periods like weekends where you switch off your phone and you detach as much as possible from, um, from the job. That doesn't offer as much benefit as eight days away, but it's an awful lot better than those weekends where you end on Sunday night by trying to catch up on email or get a, you know, or get a jump on jump on Monday. Well, and so what if you, as you said, you know, a lot of people don't have necessarily, you know, 20 to 30 days of vacation. Um, if they're Americans, yes. um, is it better than, you know, let's say you have two weeks of vacation or you have, you know, three weeks of vacation business days, we'll say to take, you know, more frequent, say, you know, long weekends to do like four long weekends in a year? Um, or do you really need kind of that week to totally decompress? So it generally takes when you're away, it takes a couple days to kind of get into vacation mode, to sort of reach the psychological point where you feel really fully detached. However, 
that's a process that can begin as soon as you're out of the office. And so even if you don't get into a really deep vacation mode after two days, however far you've gotten is going gonna, is gonna to bring benefit. The other thing I think is that um, one of the things that we've learned is that it's not just the time away that is significant, but it is what you do when you're off that affects the the kind of restorative quality of your time out of the office. And so if you have, let's say, you know, a really serious engaging hobby, you know, spending time doing that, even just, you know, two or three days can offer big return for relatively small time investment. Uh, Things that are um, physically exhausting, like long hikes, can offer a very concentrated benefit. Shorter things of that sort can be really valuable, even if you're not able to you know, do them for you know a week or ten days. You don't have to do you know one of these like English cross country you know coast to coast hikes that are like you know 180 <laughs> miles and take 12 days. The more you can do something that takes you mentally out of the office and puts you someplace else that is psychologically and physically engaging, the more benefit you're going to get. Yeah, well, and I think that idea is, is sort of what's um, most intriguing to me, that when you're on vacation, if you want that vacation to be truly restorative, you know, the best thing to do is not necessarily to do nothing or to just sit by a pool, although that could be fine as well, but to actually be engaged in Mm -hmm. something, whether that's a physical activity or whether that's a hobby and to be engaged in something that kind of explicitly doesn't have to do with your work. Right. Right. Winston Churchill in a wonderful book called Painting as a Pastime talks about how real relaxation doesn't come from doing nothing at all if you're a busy person, but rather doing something different. An alternative outlook, a change of atmosphere, a diversion of effort is essential, as he says. And there's a fantastic study a few years ago of military reservists that found that military reservists, if they're, or when they come back from a couple weeks or a month of service, turn out to exhibit the same kinds of psychological benefits that, you know, people who've been on vacation exhibit. And so, you know, the fact that they were off doing very different kinds of things, even though they're physically strenuous, even though they were wearing, you know, wearing a uniform, um, turned out to be really good for their, you know, for their attitudes and their resilience and their productivity at work. And so, you know, I think that we very, you know, it's very often the case that when we think of vacation, we think of the freedom to do absolutely nothing at all. And we sometimes are disappointed when we're not able to just, you know, lie at the beach or lie by the pool and just let the hours pass by. Um, However, you know, it turns out that as pleasant as that can be, that we can get more of a psychological benefit, more of a boost by doing things that are more active and more engaging and in the long run that they'll be sort of better for us. I love this one line from the book where you say, quote, if your work is yourself, when you cease to work, you cease to exist. Many of us have this idea that um, we are defined by what we do. We are defined by our labor or professional identity. We get 
a lot of our sense of self from the work that we do. This is one of the things that we um, reflexively use to define ourselves when we are talking to other people, right? In casual conversation, one of the easiest questions to ask is, so what do you do? So we define ourselves this way. We define other people that way. And one of the things that happens as a result of that is that it makes it easier to find our sense, not just of social identity, but our more kind of intimate sense of ourselves to what we produce, to the work that we do. And there is nothing inherently wrong with that. You know, humans, when they're in jobs that they like, when they're doing work that's engaging, work that is meaningful, um, they can derive tremendous satisfaction from that. It's one of the things that helps give life meaning and pleasure and purpose. The problem, though, is when we come to see that labor as the only thing that defines sort of who we are, and when we come to see things like rest as a kind of negative space defined by the absence of work as opposed to a positive thing in and of itself. I would love to see more people recognize that while those periods of labor are important um, and necessary, that it's also really that you know, we will be better people, we'll be better workers, we'll be better creators if we recognize that rest is important as well and that we take it seriously and we make a place for it in our busy lives. Alex's final call to action made me think of a quote that's attributed to jazz singer Lena Horne that goes, it's not the load that breaks you down, it's the way you carry it. We all carry around this load, this burden of our ambitions every day. And it's useful to realize that we will actually be significantly more effective in achieving those ambitions if we make time to set down our burden, to take a break, to do something different, to let our minds wander and make connections without our conscious effort. If you've ever attended a yoga class, you might have heard your instructor use the word effortful. It's a strange word, but I'm quite fond of it because the implication is, even if you're in a pose that's really difficult for you, the goal is still to try to find some ease in it. You can try to muscle your way through the challenge, or you can surrender to the challenge. If I learned one thing from this conversation with Alex, it's that everything doesn't have to be an effort. That sometimes the real challenge lies in learning how to do nothing at all. You heard Alex Pang comment on the creative benefits of long strolls in this episode. And next week, I'm going deep on walking with the aptly named writer, Alyssa Walker. As the rare denizen of Los Angeles who does not drive and the urbanism editor at Curbed.com, Alyssa has thought deeply about the role of walking in our lives as citizens, urban dwellers, and creative people. We'll be talking about walking as perhaps the easiest way to slow down and how it impacts your engagement with your local community and your engagement with your own physical body. As always, if you'd like to be notified when new episodes come out or you'd just like to get more food for thought from yours truly, you can sign up for my lovingly curated weekly newsletter at hurryslowly.co. That's hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. And now it's time for your final moment of zen.
if you're in an environment where your boss or your colleagues tend to treat you know rest as something that you can do when you're dead, it is definitely a challenge. However, creativity is it's a matter of small gains, you know, and every little one of them can help. This episode was produced by Matt Susich, and our original music was composed by Devin Craig Johnson. If you dug the show, please make a New Year's resolution to write us a review on iTunes. Every rating helps us grow our audience, which helps us keep making the show. Thanks again for listening, and please remember to balance your efforts this year with just a little bit of ease.